Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is one of the most knowledgeable audio people I know, Havana Manley from Manley Labs. First of all, YouTube has launched a series of new charts. Yes, there's a new trending chart, top music videos, top artists, and top songs, and you can find these in 44 different countries right now. Why is this important? Well, it seems like YouTube is now competing with Billboard, and Billboard just renovated their charts as well, so it reflects more of what's happening in streaming. What they did basically is there's two streaming tiers. There's a paid tier and there's a free tier. So now a paid stream actually gets three times the weight of a free stream, and that's pretty much the way it probably should work. With YouTube, of course, everything is free, so that doesn't really apply. But YouTube feels that, in fact, their charts are more representative of what's going on, basically because they have 1.8 billion users every month. And if you can imagine, that's a quarter of the people on the planet access YouTube every month, if you can believe their stats. And what's more, 46% of all music streaming comes via YouTube. So this may be something significant for the future. It's something worth keeping an eye on, and certainly it's worth looking at the charts, the YouTube charts, because they do reflect what's going on on YouTube, and in many cases that can be more representative of the music today than what you can find on Billboard. If you have any questions or comments, send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. Check out my Hitmakers Club for access to the Private Mixers Facebook group, monthly deconstructed hits, mixing workshop and Q&A webinars, and for a short time, access to my core training module bonus. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now, despite recent reports and despite the Gibson bankruptcy, it turns out that guitars are not dying as a instrument or as something that people actually want to buy. So if you look at the guitar stats, over the last decade or so, guitar sales are down by about half a million. They're down by quite a lot. That being said, they are up in certain territories. Now, Gibson itself even though it had a bad year, it wasn't because of guitar sales. Their guitar sales were actually up by 10%. What brought Gibson down, brought them into bankruptcy, was the fact that they borrowed money to actually expand into consumer electronics. And that's really, especially one company, Philips, brought them down more than anything else. But their guitar business is quite solid. Acoustic guitar sales have soared, and this is for just about every company. Fender has done very well. They sold 170,000 instruments last year. And if you look at the overall sales, guitar sales are up quite a bit from 2009. One of the big problems that people have with the industry and what makes people think that guitars in general are not doing as well is the fact that they look at the brick and mortar and the mom and pop retail stores especially. And of course, those are falling by the wayside quickly. Guitar Center, of course, is not doing well, and they may be the next huge music industry company to actually go into bankruptcy, and everyone's kind of expecting that. That being said, 50% of Fender's sales 
were online last year. That's 50%. And if you would have predicted that 10 years ago, you never would have thought that it was going to be anywhere near that. A few more interesting guitar stats. First of all, 50% of new players now are women. And of course, that's way up from what it used to be. 90% of new players abandon the instrument within the first year. 90% take up guitar and don't even last a year. That being said, the 10% that do last are probably going to spend at least $10,000 on instruments during their lifetime. And I can tell you from the players I know, it's probably going to be a whole lot more than that. So the guitar isn't dying, despite what you may read. It's somewhat healthy, and many people think that it's healthier than ever. I wouldn't go quite that far, but for sure, it's not going to go away anytime soon. My guest today is Ivana Manley, who's the president, CEO, and sole owner of Manley Labs. For the last two decades, she's been instrumental in the continued proliferation of high-end tube gear to both the pro-audio and hi-fi industries. She's as smart as they come in this business, and so incredibly knowledgeable in audio and manufacturing that every conversation with her reveals something new and interesting. In the upcoming interview, we talked about the state of tube technology, the importance of a power supply in audio gear, and the excellent and sometimes overlooked manly microphones. Ivana and I spoke via Skype from her home in Pasadena, California. So you were last on my podcast, I think you were number four. And wow. now we're up at 215. So that was four years ago. Congratulations, Bobby. That's amazing. Well, thank you. But what I want to talk about is you because so much has changed in four years. So what's all different at Manly in those four years? Wow. Um, I think I've, I've really just in the last little while been really solidifying my team. And, uh, and even just recently, you know, putting on uh, my my longtime best friend, JB from France, is my new international director of sales. He's really taken a lot of load off of me and also uh, just promoted Gamma, who's been working for me for 25 plus years or something. Um, he's been running the factory basically so I don't, I don't really have to go in there every day, which is good. So he's handling all those roles. But in the last year, he's really stepped up and taken more leadership role with the sales and order processing and also things I used to do and interfacing with the dealers. So now I've got Gamma handling the Latin American market because he's Spanish-speaking native and JB based in France handling all the rest of the world. So together... The three of us were actually putting a really big push on on sales, and that's also augmented by Mark Stykos here in America, who's who's my main dealer wrangler here in the U.S. So um, the sales end of things that's that's pretty important too, because it's great to build a bunch of products and keep ourselves busy, but we we have to really work to keep selling stuff too. <laughs> it's not just for ourselves. <laughs> yeah, no, let's talk about that for a second because the audio business has changed so much recently. I can't imagine that there are as many dealers out there as there used to be. No, there's not so many, not like these uh, mom and pop shops that used to exist in the 90s. And I was I was really loyal to those guys for a really long time because we had people like, like uh, Coast Recording here in Hollywood, um, Jerry Cubbage and uh, Bruce Stratton was my biggest salesman in the whole world in the early 90s, you know. And then we worked with a mom and pop shop in Texas called Studio Tech Supply. And 
um, those guys used to sell a ton of gear, and it it it, it was very difficult to switch uh, from the mom and pop shop thing to the main big dealers like Sweetwater Guitar Center, Vintage King, and Alto Music. Those guys and the little the little mom and pop shops were really threatened by them, as my grandfather was in the late '80s when he had like a he sold he was a Westinghouse dealer. He sold Toro. He was a Toro dealer. He sold, you know, lots of little small engine things and appliances and home goods, durable goods and things like that in Connecticut. And when he saw um, Home Depot and these big box chain stores marching into the area, he's like, oh, it's time to get out of this. And he sold his store that had been, you know, running for 40 years or so. So, you know, having kind of grown up and seen that store I could really understand you know how threatened the small shops were but uh, on the flip side that you know the, the big shops are just doing that better a job and in these days you know with the financing they offer to people and really easy return policies and also um, you know place like Sweetwater the kind of training that they put into their sales engineers it's it's it, it's unbelievable it's great service and they're the big guys just beat the little guys with quality, mostly. You know, I grew up around the same thing as well. My dad owned a jewelry store in a small town in Pennsylvania, and it went very well. He specialized in diamonds and watches. It went very well for a long time, and then all of a sudden, two big malls showed up. Yeah. And with big jewelry retailers. And it was a very slow death spiral. I saw if, until he retired, he kept it going. But I could just see every time I go back, I'd look and go, uh, "This is a little worse than it was last time." And I'd always think, would it have been better to just see the writing on the wall and get out early, or keep it going till the end, like he did? Uh, it's probably better to get out early, I would think. Get out on top. Well, th- things are changing. I mean, now you look at these malls and half these big malls are just freaking dead in America. Yeah. That model, that model's changed. So we're on stage three of it, which is online purchases yeah. and behemoths like Amazon. I mean, I just ordered toilet paper and paper towels from Amazon just because I'm too lazy to go down the street to stupid target to get it. You know, it does, no, I know whatever. they're going to bring it to my doorstep. I don't even have to carry it in the door. Um, it's different. I mean, I, I'll tell you another funny story. I was I, I just bought this building in Eagle Rock, like we got the keys yesterday for it. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> um and uh so oh I was in Germany two weeks ago at Music Mesa and I get an email from my from the escrow broker who says, Hey, we're gonna close this week, so uh let's get the dollars uh, ready. Uh, she didn't say it that informally, but and um we're going to have you transfer it to uh, an account in Mexico because the seller's got some business there, and I'll be sending the wire instruction in the, in the next email. And I, I just kind of glossed over it, and I replied back real quick, like, hey, I'm in Germany right now. There's going to be a time delay, but let me get all my brokerage funds into the right account and get ready for all this. Uh, let me know, you know what I can do next. And then... I looked again at that email, and I'm like, Mexico? What the hell does uh, escrow instructions have to do with an account in Mexico? I'm paying the escrow company. I don't, nobody cares where the seller's got a business or whatever. And then I, I look at 
a prior email from the escrow lady. And there's a couple differences in the SIG file, although they look similar. Oh. And the the phone number isn't 818-something anymore. It's 817-something. And then I look at the email address, and it's not lmtescrow.com. It's lmttescrow.com. And I go look on ICANN. This is like 2 in the morning in Germany, and I'm sleeping. I'm investigating all this. And my heart's racing. I go on to ICANN, and I see that lmttescrow.com got registered the day before. So it's like, oh, my God, there's a scammer. Wow. I'm almost, I mean, I could have sent a freaking million dollars to some account in Mexico and just lost a huge fortune Wow. Um, if I weren't paying attention. And why I'm telling you the story is that, you know, who would go in with a gun and rob a bank anymore? There's nearly a billion dollars of this exact escrow fraud going on in America every year. The FBI's published that. There's almost a billion dollars a year people are stealing from just any anyone like me buying property. And then it's like, who did they hack? Did they ha- hack the escrow lady? Did they hack my email? Did they hack the broker's email? Who's to know? So things change. I mean, we don't rob banks with guns anymore. Got, you know, stick them up and give me all your cash. That's chump change when you could go, you know, bilk people out of millions of dollars, you know, via email. Yeah. Wow. Crazy. So things evolve. Things evolve. And and it's a common thread also in recording. You know, we, we don't record with tape anymore. ADDs and DDAs have gotten better over the years. Digital is our thing. Um, Pro Tools is the de facto standard. People also evolve how they're recording. Like, I, I keep preaching this. I'm going to say it again. You know, hey, we're in the audio business. Stop recording with your eyeballs. You mm. know, we need to remember how to learn to listen. And again, back in the day, people were, you know, there was there's a lot of inaccuracies for the analog equipment. You had to listen like, oh, sh- did that just shift way over to the left? Oh, I better adjust something to bring it back center again. Um and now, because of computers and accuracy and meters, people are, are relying less on their ears, I believe. Well, how does the fact that everything has changed away from analog and, and into digital, how has that affected you as a basic analog company? Well, I'll give you an example. So let's take the variable mu. Okay, so that, that unit first came out as a mono unit that you could link two of them uh, in the early 90s. And then the stereo variable mu came out in 1994 and it quickly became a mastering favorite and it was a few years before we even made a switching mastering version so a lot of the mastering guys were just using the pots and and they would listen and set the pots up and get their stereo image right and that's what they do that's their job and that's why you were paying them you know 300 bucks a song or whatever to do it and so over the years, we started noticing like more customers would contact us and say, hey, um, the right channel is like a dB and a half louder than the left channel. It's like, okay, well, that's a mistracking on the stereo input pot. That's kind of normal. They're 10% parts, you know, uh, to, to mitigate that, just, just like barely breeze on the threshold control of one of the channels or just knock the output control up just a hair, like, you know, and you'll, you know, and, and you'll get your image right back center again. Oh, no, 
it's broken. I want a, I want a new unit or I want 500 bucks discount, you know? So then we're, we're swapping out the input pots and then we're measuring them. We build a little device, a little tracking jig so we could pre-test these things and try to try to select the stereo pots that had one DB tracking error, worst case, you know, all through the range, not just at 11 o'clock, but you know, anywhere you put it, so it wasn't going left, right, left, right, left, right. You know, it was consistent within a DB. So that was fine for a little while. And then then the calls are coming in. Hey, my thing's one DB out. So then we start selecting for half DB tracking. And we're throwing away tons of pots. Then we start pulling the pot, pots apart. So we would measure all the front sections and all the back sections. And then tape them all up with their measurements written down. And then you know, say, okay, the front pot of number 22 is a good match for the back section of pot number 159. Wow. And then we'd pin them back together and make this like super matched pot. And then, you know, we could get maybe within a quarter to be, and then a few years go by, and then that's not good enough anymore. And guys are complaining. Like when I set up my thing, the left channel's, you know, louder quarter db than the right it's like dude do you knew, even know what the definition of a decibel is like by definition it's supposed to be the thing you can't hear the difference between like one db i mean we can hear you know but that's like this is so small and again if you just breathe on the output or threshold pot you'll be back to where you're supposed to be you know we know that it's going to mistrack right there so then after that you know People don't understand, and we just switch the whole thing to, to switches and 1% resistors, you know, five a five-way switch, and there it is. And then they're like, oh, I missed the pot. I want to get right in between. <laughs> or, you know, it's like, oh, Jesus. You know, so it's affected us because people used to record with their ears. You know, barely anybody's going to hear that quarter DB. No difference. kidding. No kidding. You know. And then, you know, when you're actually there with your hands on the unit and, it, and you were working with a tape machine in a mastering room, you would set the knobs, you'd have your head in the position, you would hear the image shift, and you would just barely touch the knobs and get it right back there. But because people, I think, are really not training themselves how to listen critically or, or well, <laughs> then we have this kind of situation where they're just looking at the meters on the screen oh my God, it's a quarter DB off and they're freaking out. And it, you know, it, it's, it's become a visual recording industry. Wow. That's, and that's how it's affected us because as plugins have become the new norm, then when people get hold of the analog equipment, they don't understand that this stuff is built with 1% parts, 5% parts, 10% tolerance parts and sometimes 20% tolerance parts. And while we do tons of matching and batching of individual components in the way that we build things to try to get good matching, you know, frequencies line up and all that, it's an analog world. And to try to get computer-like accuracy out of analog is very difficult. Well, I would think that since there's so fewer commercial studios these days, that that would hurt business because there would be fewer <laughs> racks for your gear to go in. 
That being said, I still see people building studios everywhere, but uh, I, I can't imagine that there are many of as many of them as there used to be. I think the base of the pyramid expanded, so anybody can set up a little recording rig in their house. Hmm. I mean, just I mean, you 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 might be in your house right now. I am. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So um, even though there might be fewer commercial facilities. Hold on, incoming call. I got to decline. Sorry about that. Yep. Even though there may be fewer commercial facilities, uh, you know, rooms for hire, there might be more individual musicians and uh, people just making records in a smaller situation, smaller scale. I mean, we're selling the same or more amount of analog gear than we were before. We've also changed the kind of products we're building too. And we're trying to appeal to a musician at home and trying to make a simpler product and a less costly product. Definitely. Well, how are things in the hi-fi world? Because boy, that's changed as well. The hi-fi world's really latched on to the vinyl thing. So our, for us, our best selling product right now is the Chinook Phono Stage in uh, 2,500 buck record, records, you know, um, RIAA stage. You have to have a separate preamplifier for it. Um, the tube amps are kind of slow right now. Uh, they're also a little older models, even though they're fantastic models, and it takes a lot of resources to be able to develop you know, brand-new products all the time. I see that market definitely declining as far as volume goes. In the olden days, we used to ship pallets of high-powered tube amplifiers you know, to Hong Kong and Taiwan and we used to, I mean, we set up like two different importers and hit them with two different brands to supply wow. the demand for the market back then. Um, that's just all gone. And again, I think the dealer situation in the hi-fi world, in generally speaking, is pretty weak also. You're left with some mom and pop shops, but they're really, they seem to be really underfunded or disinterested or, or I don't know. That market, the audiophile market's not, not doing that well, in my opinion. I went Except to, for records. I went to the Hi-Fi show last year in Irvine, I guess, and I was amazed at all of the snake oil that was there. <laughs> I mean, you go into a room, especially speakers, geez, you, and you see these speakers that are super expensive and just sound like crap. Yeah, that's common. Wow. I, feel, I mean, I've, I walked in there, and it's like, hey, uh, mister, do you know that you've got a speaker out of phase? Yeah, yeah, you've got a right. wire and they're like, shut up, little girl. I know what I'm doing. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just like, I've done this before. I just walk in and just go in the back and unplug the obviously backward speaker cable yeah. and put it back and, and say, dude, I told you your speaker wires backwards. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I don't know. It could, I mean, I've gotten tricked by phase. More than one time in my life as well. I'm not going to say I'm perfect either. Um, but yeah, I, I see that kind of thing. Um, Michael Fremer sent me an article today that there was some class action lawsuit against a, a big speaker cable company um, that you know was claiming that this wire um, was better for acoustic guitar and the other model they made was better for French horn or whatever it was, you know. And so there was some some legal team strumming up 
a class action lawsuit for snake oil, you know, basically like, you know, this tech, this is, is some time technology bullshit that just doesn't exist. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's still just copper, you know, tin plated copper wire. <laughs> Let's talk about tubes for a second. What is the state of vacuum tubes today? Are they as easy to get as they were? Are the factories still kicking them out? Yeah, I mean, as long as the guitar market, well, which is also declining, as we know, the guitar amplifier market uh, stays relatively large, then there's a demand for certain tube types, and the Russians and the Chinese seem to be cranking out the most of those tubes, and supply has been actually pretty good in the last decade, I'd say, maybe a little better than the decade before. We don't necessarily have as many tube types to choose from. I mean, we, you know, you, you when you're designing product today, you want to look at what's readily available to buy new and buy lots of and design around that tube, you know. Gone are the days of the thousands or tens of thousands of new old stock joint army navy stashes left in the world or whatever. And we got some of those in the early 90s. Um but uh, that kind of stuff, if you find it on the used market right now in the commercial used market, it's very easy to clean up tubes and repaint them and clean them up. You can re-etch them if you wanted to uh, and make them look like a new tube. And they've probably been passed around a few times. So Interesting. I do not go look for new old stock stashes anymore because even if I found a couple hundred, it doesn't. It doesn't satisfy production at all. So we design things around tubes that we can get, and the Russian 12AX7s and 6922s are quite decent these days, and we're trying to use a lot of those. Okay, well, speaking of designing new products, you've had a number of new products that have come out, especially lately. Tell me how you determine what you're going to build, because that must be difficult. Yeah, I mean, it has to do with numbers, but it also there's the design part of it that, I think kicks in with everybody going, I want to make this particular product because I think I can make it better or cheaper or whatever the case. So how do you determine that? We look at market trends first. Um, a couple years ago, we had, you know, our Vox Box, our Massive Passive, our Variable Muse. Those are all well above $4,000 units. And again, back to a musician working in his house, he might not have 4,000 bucks he can put towards a vocal strip. So a vocal channel was the first, like, hey, let's do a, a new version of a Vox box. Let's design it. Instead of just designing it like this is balls out, anything it can be, and then, then figuring out what it would cost to build, we say, all right, the market, we need to try to compete with XYZ products out there. They're right around two thousand bucks retail. You know, if we can come in at twenty two fifty retail, where it streets at just under two thousand bucks, we're going to be right in the market with a really good product. So, then the challenge is like, how can we design something to? Then we know, okay, if we have a retail price set, then we can do the division and decide like, okay, well, we can't spend any more than this to build it. So, you know, one solution would be, yeah, let's get all the labor thrown to. China, not Chino, um, but I I have not compromised the integrity of my of my guys and my workforce and my factory to do that. So that was off the table right away. Okay, what else can we do? 
well, one thing that was really important in the last couple products that we just did was this new switching power supply. And that was designed for us by Bruto Putzies, who's like a total worldwide expert audio designer. Very, um, and specifically, he's like super knowledgeable with power supplies and um, switching systems and, and Class D amplifiers and things like that, which is well outside of our knowledge zone. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, befriending, befriending Bruno at trade shows over the years, I was chatting with him one day. And he, he also, you know, worked for Hypex, um, the power supply company. And it's like, hey, Bruno, uh, I don't even know. I mean, I know that there's switching power supplies in my computer, you know, 18-volt supplies or whatever it runs, 24-volt supplies. Can you make, like, a high-voltage switching supply, like, for vacuum tubes? He's like, oh, yeah, sure. I'm like, oh, man. Well, would you be able to design if I give you some specs, like we need 300 volts at this amps and 6.3 volts at these amps and plus and minus 15 and blah, blah, could you design a power supply for us, like using this really cool technology that you know about? And he's like, yeah, no problem. So he did, and we we worked with him and his engineer, Nand. Uh, initially, they were part of the Hypex factory in um that was based in Malaysia, and it's, uh, they've changed all that since then. But we're in our third iteration of this really awesome 90-watt brick of a switching power supply. And it was instrumental in these new products. Now, it wasn't any cheaper to make than a linear supply. Really? As we costed it out. Yeah. And so it wasn't done. I know I started a conversation with cost, but it's really um, – I've done these listening tests time and time again with the linear supply versus the switcher and the switcher, our switching supply, sorry, not just any switching supply, the one that was designed for us for audio, for vacuum tubes, high voltage, high headroom, low noise, all that. Our switching power supply sounds better than any of the linear supplies that we used to use. It's amazing. Wow. And the... All the lines are regulated. They're really low impedance. It's a very low radiating design. You don't, um, it runs at 125 kilohertz. So that's well outside the audio band. Even if you, if, if it were leaking into the audio, that's well outside what you're going to hear. There's no hum anymore in the units. So here in America, 60 hertz, it's obliterated. And it was something that we would fight, especially with, Passive EQs with their, their chokes, you know, they're just, oh, hi, Transformer, why don't you throw some of your home over here so yeah. I can throw it into the audio and all this. So it, it wasn't done for a cost reason. It was done, we moved to this switching power supply for, it's a performance issue, and it gives us a huge edge over anyone else that's doing anything like we're doing. They don't have this power supply technology that we have. It makes our production easier because these power supplies work all over the world. Another thing, you know, people, are, we all get spoiled with our laptop switching power supplies and our USB chargers. We travel all, the way, all around the world, and all we need is just adapters to change the plug. We don't need to bring conversion transformers and stuff anymore. Everything where, you know, all the common stuff that we got our hands on works on universal voltage these days. And I see people in Europe when they buy gray market goods from the US and they plug it in over there and they blow up the unit with a linear supply because they don't even know that they need to 
plug that thing into a converter transformer or get the voltage change or something. So yeah. the switching supplies make our lives a lot easier that um, we don't have to keep different stock at different voltages or reconfigure voltages before we ship. It works all around the world. So that that's handy. And for the customer, he can travel and record anywhere in the world with the gear. That's been, that power supply has been a fundamental um, part of our newest products. And I'm, busy trying to work that power supply into some of our older products like the massive passive and the Vox box where we see, you know, most of the, the repair failures that are happening have to do with like shipping damage with a big power transformer, mm. you know, just getting, you know, if it's not packed adequately, it, it gets smashed, it breaks the case or breaks the power switch or whatever. And then people plugging it into the wrong voltage and, smoke pours out you know so if we can get get the new power supply into the older units and it sounds better it's quieter and you can use it all over the world and it's lighter and and the thing will travel better and not get broken so much in shipping well it's a the only thing it doesn't cost any less for us but it's win 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 for everything else yeah yeah so that's what we're working on right now. And that, yeah, it's that power supply is super. I know it's a bit boring, but it, I'm, as you can tell, I'm a little excited about it. <laughs> well, power supplies are the most overlooked piece of the design puzzle. And the designers who really know what they're doing concentrate on that and make sure it's right. So I could see why you'd spend that much time. You know, again, once upon a time, when you talked Class D, you talked switching power supplies, that was really you know it was taboo you didn't want to speak about that because it just didn't sound good and it's very much like going analog to digital now we've got analog to digital and power supplies and everybody's okay with it because it it works well yeah d doesn't stand for digital don't forget that it d is just the the letter after c so we have class <laughs> a class b yes. a b1 c and the d d does not mean digital right, right it's just the next class of operation just make sure everyone knows about that um, but you know, it power supply design, we, we use the basic same formula in all our old products. And sometimes we'd add some extra regulation. Sometimes we'd add some vacuum tube rectification or regulation or something. And, um, power supply design, I'm glad we've evolved it. And I, I was super lucky to make friends with like one of the world's best experts in this technology and reach out to them. And um, it's super important. And the listening test, they, it bears it out. When I, last test I did was with a phono stage and I was down at Pete Lyman's mastering studio listening to records he had cut there with him. And we did blind A-B testing and listened to linear supply unit versus switcher unit. And the switching one won every time. The blacks are blacker. The top frequencies were like faster sounding. And it was just a, a clearer, better sound all around. So that's, the, again, we're in the audio business and we need to be listening to what we're designing and building, not just looking at the measurements or at the scopes or whatever. Let's talk about the microphones for a bit because I've never known anyone to use a manly microphone that didn't come back impressed and way impressed. And the people that own your microphones, all I can say is 
when you talk to them about it, they're passionate about how much they love oh, them. Thanks. That being said, it seems like when people think of manly, that's not the first thing they think of. I mean, I don't even believe it half the time. The manly reference card, cardioid mic is our best-selling product. We sell more of those things than anything else we build. Wow. I didn't and, know that. <laughs> you know, I know, because you think of manly and you think, oh, yeah, massive passive and box box yeah. and variable mute and your big tube amps. And yeah, but the the ref C is the biggest selling thing we make. And and it took a while to get that thing going. Um, we started building that mic and the reference gold mic both in 1990. And the Mastering Labs engineer at the time, Steve Hazelton, was moonlighting with us. And he would come out and work work with David Manley with on design things that maybe a couple days a week and a couple days a week he was at mastering lab and it was actually Steve who designed the circuitry for the microphones. It wasn't David. Um, and then the gold mic used the David Josephson capsule, which, which took a few years to get, you know, for him to get the production consistent as well. In those early days, that's when he just started making microphones and capsules and things. And then the uh, Ref C, we'd started importing some Chinese microphones. We were like some of the first people to do that. We took it over from another entity. We brought in a mic called the CR3A, which is was out of the Phalo factory. And we would get cartons of them in and ship them out. But we, we took the capsule from that, and that's what the the Ref C capsule was and has been this whole this whole time, all these decades. Um, the the microphone started getting popular with our Swedish agent who got them in with Max Martin. And so he he was using those on uh, I guess Britney Spears and Voice to Men or I don't know, all those pop vocal groups of the nineties. And then um, I remember selling a Ref C to Dr. Luke when he was still a guitar player for um, Saturday Night Live, was it? I met him, and then years later, he blew up and became super famous with Katy Perry and Keisha and all, all you know, the new wave of all this pop stuff, I guess, coming out of the Max Martin model. So that that started sales kind of rolling because people were wondering what he was using. Then my nephew, Chris, when he started working for me and taking more active lead in sales and marketing at the factory, he, he had a whole bunch of other younger friends that, you know, was groups I had never even heard of or whatever. And like like John Feldman, producer John Feldman, for instance, and he, he started dragging the reference cardio mic around to his buddies that he knew, musician friends and so on. And it started... I, I'd say it's Chris that started the giant wave of sales. And we went, you know, from selling like 50 mics a year to 500 mics a year. Wow. It's insane. So, um, but it's been a long ride. It's like almost 30 years history with that mic. And as far as like being, uh, people being really um, happy with them and having a good emotional response to it, I guess it's because we're not just a, a faceless German company. <laughs> you know, people kind of see us active here in America and they know the characters of the company and, and starting with me and my, my team, you know, yeah. and, uh, I, I, that's just been one way I've marketed 
the company over the years, and I, I guess it's worked because it, it, it pulls people emotionally into the company because they want to deal with people they, they want to know or seem to know. <laughs> well, or, or they know that we're actually people here, not, you know, some faceless robot somewhere. Yeah, you've done a good job mm-hmm. of branding like that. I try to do the same thing. Most of the stuff that I do is labeled. It's Bobby Osinski's whatever, course, book, whatever. I know it's helped me because people feel that they know me. And yeah. I'm sure it's the same thing with you. People feel comfortable about your gear because they feel like they know you because you, you've been the face of it. So they put your face onto the gear and it makes them feel more comfortable. So I know it's been a, a strategy that's worked for you. Whether it was intentional or not, it's worked. Well, we back that up also with, I mean, my job these days is more kind of pre-sales assistant, you know, assistance if, if people want to know, well, should I get the LOP or the variable mu? I'm trying to do this. Which one should I get or which mic? I can talk with them and, and try to, and listen to what they're trying to do and advise them based on what I've, you know, my experience with my buddies, what they would go for, what I've heard back in my experience. Um, and then on the other end, the after sale support with Paul and Gamma and myself too, when people have problems and they do, things break or tubes go noisy or things get broken, whatever. We're super responsive and easy to get hold of. And we have a quick turnaround for the repair work. And, and especially here in SoCal, you know, folks can drive out to the factory and get something fixed while they wait, you know. And we're used to to professionals using the equipment and you just don't want that thing down in the middle of a session or the whole session's trash and everyone's sitting on their hands. So it's not just like people are just enjoying this gear for pleasure. It's like, Hey, the taxi meter is running and we got to keep it going. So yeah. that whole personal aspect, um, it's not just a face too. It's it, we're, we're earnestly trying to help people find solutions to, you know, get their jobs done. Last question, Ivana. This is something that I asked of everybody, but I didn't ask this of you the first time you were on my podcast. It was a little before I kind of developed a way of doing this. What's the best piece of business advice that either someone imparted to you or you learned along the way? Oh, that, well, there's been many, but there's one that always stands out to me. And that was when um, I was just getting divorced the first time in the late 90s, and I was buying David Manley out of the company. And all the, I mean, it was David's last name, Manley, that was a brand of the company. It, every faceplate said, designed by David Manley on the faceplate. All the owner's manual said that as well. His pictures, he was the brand. He, it was his pictures on the catalogs and on the early websites and so on. And it was Paul Wolf, my buddy Paul Wolf, who we all know and love. Oh yeah, Paul, Paul, and this is so many years ago. I was chatting with him one day because we're buddies, and he said, "You know, here's what you need to do." <laughs> and if you know Paul, he always says that. Yeah, he says, "You, the future of the company is you. It's not David Manley. You've bought him out. He's gone. He's in France." He's away. He's never going to be involved with the company again. The future of the company is you, and you need to get his name off the faceplates and out of the owner's manuals and off the website and start branding the company around you. And, you know, I took it to heart, 
and and I was still trying to hold on at the at the time, you know, like I, I emotionally wasn't even into doing that. And he was right. I had to do that because, you know, people want to look to me for help in the future or products in the future. And that couple years that that existed in the past was a long time ago. And now looking back on it, I mean, he was he was Manly Labs started in 93 and David left in 96. And then before that, we were part of vacuum tube logic before that. But, mm-hmm. I mean, we're talking 25 and 30 years ago, and there's so many of our customers that are not even 30 years old. Yeah. That is long time history ago, you know. Um, I know that you, you teach about branding a lot, Bobby, and one of the best branding uh, messages that I got beaten into my head with a, with a very gentle suggestion from Paul Wolf was, it's you. I mean, we could talk about power supplies all day long and everyone's going to yawn and go get a beer. But when you're talking about people in um, histories and futures and things like that, it's way more engaging and much more memorable to be thinking about who are the people behind the company. The next thing there's a good, I'll leave you with that too. There's a, a good Ted talks on that. I think um, about um, it doesn't matter like, what the thing is as much as why they do it, you know? So again, I can tell you empirically why this power supply is good, but why I decided to put it in all my products, the reasons why that's going to be more important than what it does or it's quieter, this empirical data or specification or whatever. So that's really good. Human connection and why we do it. You can find out more about Avana and Manly Labs at manly.com, manly, M-A-N-L-E-Y.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyowinnercircle.com or find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, or Google Play. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyowinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.